Well, good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. As, uh, as we are get, getting ready for next week, I don't know if you heard, something special going on next week. Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate Easter, and it has been a build-up going through this series, uh, talking about being embraced by Jesus. For about two months, it feels like, we've been talking about all the things that he has gone through so that we can relate to him and understand how much he loves us. And uh, it's, I, I don't know about you, but you get to a point, like I think last week I said, it's almost like, enough, enough. Can we just get some good news, please? It is good news all the way through. Everything that we've talked about has been good news, but it really gets good next week. So I look forward to celebrating Resurrection Sunday, celebrating Easter with you. Um, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, is a celebration of also something that, that God did. And I was trying to think this, what can God do and not do? And I heard a story about a, a little boy. He was flying out to see his grandparents, so he got on a plane and He's all by himself, but he happened to be sitting next to this uh, seminary professor. So the seminary professor looks over at this little boy, and he pulls out some papers out of his backpack and starts looking through them, and there were some Sunday school papers. So the seminary professor thought, well, I'll have a little fun with them. He goes, looks at the little boy and said, excuse me, young man, but if you can tell me something that God can do, I'll give you a king-size candy bar. The little boy's like, oh. But then he paused and he thought for a little bit. He looked back at the seminary professor and said, Mister, I'll tell you what. If you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a candy store. <laughs> ah, yes. Isn't it? I mean, we always sit there and think, what can God do? What can God do? What can God do? But what can God not do? Do you ever think about that? Can't lie. Can't lie. <laughs> That's a good one. You would have got a candy store. Wow, Jim. You know, when we think about all the things God can and cannot do, we get to the resurrection, and that's the one thing. It's like, can he come back from the dead? Well, come back so we can find out. But for a lot of you, it's like, I do every Easter, and he keeps coming back. That's, that's good news, isn't it? Well, that's what Easter is. It's the celebration of something that God did for us that nobody else could ever imagine. What can he do? He just did it. Or at least we're going to see, Right? But before we get there again, we get that one more moment in history that leads up to that big moment. And it's actually a triumphant moment and then filled with a lot of tragedy to follow, which we've, we've sort of picked at. But we want to start back, since this is Palm Sunday, Matthew chapter 21. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem... They came to the town of Bethage and the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him, threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. 
Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Verse 10, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, as this gets started, it's, it's a pretty exciting moment that we read about. It's Palm Sunday. Let's read this passage, right? But there's a certain part in here as I really love the details. Like Jesus would say, hey, you're going to go into this town. You're going to find this donkey tied up with its colt. And then you're going to, add, somebody's going to say, where do you need it? And you're going to tell them this. And you're going to bring it here. And the disciples go and everything happens just as he said. Really good, right? But there's another thing that happened here in verse 3 when Jesus said, if anyone ask what you're doing, just say this, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now, why does that matter? Because we just sang the song, I surrender all. I surrender all to Jesus. I surrender. We, we sing that, right? And then what if Jesus walks in here and says, I need that from you. I, I need to borrow your car. I need to use your house. I need a a certain amount of cash. I need you to give up this. I need that. Would you be, would you be like these guys here? We don't even know their names. They're like, all right, the Lord needs them. We just saying, I surrender all. These guys surrendered all. They're like, yeah, go ahead. I'm, you're going to bring them back, right? We don't even know if they said that. They just let them have it. If the Lord were to walk in here today and look you in the eyes and say, I need this from you. The Lord needs them. Would you surrender all? I always thought that was an interesting part of the story. But as we read on here, this celebration is about ready to take place. There's an act of obedience before the celebration ever happens. Before Jesus can come riding in, there had to be somebody who's like, I'll be obedient to the Lord's call. That's usually what happens, right? Well, check out what happens here. This is like a typical entrance for a king who just won a victory. They, they, they were fighting somewhere. There was a war that was fought. There was a victory. King comes riding in. People would gather. They'd shout. They'd scream. They'd throw their, their garments on the road. They would maybe cut branches from the palm. They would, they would throw things out. They would just wave and celebrate, right? Here we see Jesus coming in on this donkey. The garments are spread on the road. Tree branches are cut. They're thrown on the road as well. Some of them are waving them in the air. And Jesus is the center of all this, riding in on this donkey's colt, an unbroken, never-ridden donkey. Now, I don't know if you, for those of you who grew up on a farm or anything about horses or donkeys or any kind of animal that's never been ridden before, and then you're going to put somebody on them and ride them through a parade with a lot of people screaming and shouting and waving their coats and their, and their palm branches, that colt, that donkey, is not going to be calm. I think, again, just another moment where we see here how Jesus brings peace over the natural things of this world as he rides in calmly on this unbroken colt. The people are shouting, praise God, or Hosanna, as some of your scriptures may say, which means, save us now. His blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heavens. So there's a lot of shouting. There's excitement. There's, there's this powerful moment as there's an uproar in the whole city. As people are gathering, I mean, they were going wild. And basically what is happening is a fulfillment of Scripture. And the people knew it. 
They saw what was happening, and they joined in. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. A warring king would come in on a white horse, not a donkey. Jesus comes in on this donkey, just as it was pro, uh, told before in prophecy by Zechariah. And the interesting thing is the people knew this. Disciples, as we read in John chapter 12, it says that the disciples didn't really fully understand what was going on here. But it seems everybody else did. Those in the crowd, they had these high expectations. And I think if you and I were there, we would too. I mean, if you're tired of the government, if you're tired of things going on in your home, you're tired of people getting sick, you're, you're tired of things breaking, you're tired of relationships that go bad, you just want things to get better, you want things to get healed, you want things to get fixed, you want fairness and justice, and here comes a king who can deliver it all, you'd be excited, I'd be excited, right? That's what these people wanted. They couldn't wait for the suffering to stop, for the injustices to be corrected. They're seeking, you know, like, let's end poverty, right? This would be so fantastic. So they're, they're crying out what? Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us now. Not next year. Not, not, when he, not down the road somewhere. Save us now. They were longing for this. And I believe we are the same way. But here's the thing we understand as Christians. We understand that if you're going to follow Jesus... In this life, you will have trouble. You will face suffering, brokenness. Following Jesus doesn't mean you're exempt from any of that. What it means is that he is with you through all of it. As a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he gives us this supernatural joy and this peace and this kindness and this love. We have an eternal hope. As we go through suffering, we are not alone. And John describes the people in this scene as people who heard about Jesus bringing Lazarus out of a tomb. They had heard about the miracles. Rumors spread like this Jesus, this one who brings people back from the dead, this one who heals people, this one who does miracles is coming. Let's check it out because maybe he can save us now because we're tired of all the junk. I think we could relate to that, right? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, we read in the book of John uh, chapter 12, it says... They cried out, they said, he's unstoppable. The, the whole city has gone after him. The religious leaders were like, we can't do anything about this. They were ready to wave the white flag. Of course, they didn't, we know. But there's this incredible sense as you read through Scripture that Scripture is being fulfilled one after another. There's this high emotion. There's, this, there's all this excitement. And listen, that was Sunday. But in a few days, it's all going to change. Because on a Friday, everything would get dark. And as Jesus was entering Jerusalem on a Sunday, Friday he would be exiting Jerusalem to this hill called Golgotha, where he would be crucified. It's like going from triumph to tragedy. Okay? I mean, many of you can probably relate to that moment when everything's going right, going right, going right, then all of a sudden, boom, something goes wrong. It's like 
you're on a winning team and you keep winning, you keep winning, and it's like, well, let's, let's, let's pick on the Purdue University, okay? Hey, one of the best basketball teams in college basketball, and they're winning, they're winning. We're a number one seed. We're going to play number 16 seed. Who the FAU, Florida Atlantic University or something like that? I don't know. They're number 16. Hey, let's book our flights. Let's book our tickets. Let's, let's book a hotel. Hey, let's mark off the calendar because we got all these wonderful things ahead of us. And then on that first night, they get beat. And all of a sudden, this triumph ends up in tragedy for those fans. You're going home early. It's a story of a Christian singer, Jeremy Camp. I, I, somebody reminded me of the movie, I think, as I still believe. If you've not seen that movie or read that book, uh, Jeremy Camp, a Christian singer, he goes to college. He falls in love with this young lady. He's so excited about life. He's, he just wants to marry her. And then he finds out she's got cancer and it's terminal and and. The story just turns from triumph to tragedy. What seems so good, so promising, comes to a, a tough ending. And, and that's what we have here. A triumphant entry, Palm Sunday we call it, to the cross on Friday. Adoration to anger, cheers to jeers. Coats tossed to cur- the curses that were hurled. There's a hosanna to hatred. It was celebration to a cross. And the cross, its location, as you know, was called Golgotha. And it was there where the soldiers tried to give him this mixture. Of, it said like vinegar, but it was like a wine mixed with gall. What is gall? It's basically a narcotic that was basically going to dull the senses. Hey, we don't want you to feel the full force of the pain, so why don't you just take some of this and numb yourself? Jesus was like, I'm taking on the full force. I don't want to be numbed. I want to experience all the pain. And he refused to drink it. And things continued to unfold at the cross. They nailed him to the cross. The soldiers gambled for his clothes. That was prophesied in the book of Psalm chapter 22. A sign was hung above his head, written in three different languages. Basically, that sign announced the charges. When you were in trial, we talked about this last week, sometimes you'd wear that sign around your neck as you paraded through the streets to the cross. They would then affix it to the top of the cross. Here's his crime. He was charged as being what? King of the Jews. So if, if you were to not look up there and say, I don't understand any of that, because it was written in Hebrew, for the Jews. It was written in Latin for the Romans, and it was written in Greek for all those that were from nearby areas. So they wanted to make sure every person that came through could understand in their language this was his accusation. Matthew chapter 27, 39, Mark 15, 29, it all begins with the mocking of Jesus. Now that he's been affixed to that cross, hoisted up, he's in the process of dying. The people start passing by. First, just people. They walk, they walk by and they abuse him. They mock him. Oh, you saved yourself. Or you said you can save others. Why don't you save yourself? And there's all this mockery, all this abuse. Then the religious leaders, the teachers of the religious law, the priests, they walk by. They do the same. And then the soldiers who are at the foot of the cross look up to him. And they start mocking him as well. Isn't it so easy to make fun of somebody when they're down? I mean, really? He's been beaten. He's been scourged. He's, got, he's just covered in blood, and you can make fun of him. Well, they did. Pastor buyers, religious leaders, soldiers, and then even the criminals on the cross. Matthew 27, 44, Mark 15, 32. It says that even the criminals, one on his left, one on his right, turned to him and mocked him. Excuse me, gentlemen. You two are hanging on a cross, and yet you feel 
brave enough to make fun of him. Now we do read in, Mark, in Luke chapter 23 that eventually, we don't know whether it's minutes later, hours later, but one of the other criminals that was up there finally realized this is Jesus, son of the living God. And he basically asked for forgiveness on that cross, which I think is a beautiful moment because a lot of people say, how do I get to heaven? By good works? Maybe by getting baptized? How do I get to heaven? And I think this moment on the cross takes care of a couple of those answers. It's by grace, not by works. Let's remember, the criminals hanging on the cross, they had a rap sheet super long of all the crimes they committed. They're up there because of the bad things they did. Do you think the good works of that one criminal got them into heaven? No. Well, maybe it's baptism. Well, I don't remember them taking him off the cross, baptizing them, putting him back up on the cross for him to get to heaven. Jesus looked over him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was forgiven as by grace we are saved. So the crucifixion took place, a cruel and methodic torture created by the Romans, something that they were very good at. They knew exactly where to put the nail that would pierce a nerve that would cause even more excruciating pain throughout the body. They knew that you could keep somebody alive up on that cross for quite a while. They would basically suffocate as their lungs would fill. They'd, they would try to push themselves up so they could breathe. But in the process, you have to pull down on the nails and push down on the nails on the feet and your raw back rubbed up against that splintered cross just to breathe and then come back down and then suffocate again. What a cruel thing. Blood-drenched face from the scourging, from the, the crown of thorns. The scene was ugly. It was repulsive. It was sickening. And it, and it seems like sometimes the more you read about what took place between Palm Sunday and those last few hours on the cross, there's a lot of questions, aren't there? All these questions like what happened and then how. And, 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 but the biggest one? I think the biggest one that, and I, that always hits me is, is the why. Why did God allow it? Why would God allow something like this to go that far? I mean, if you are that powerful, why allow Jesus to suffer? And I, and I you know, could we, there's probably volumes of books, stacks of books written to answer this question. So let me give, try to give you a short answer to the best I can in my ability. And let me just say this. The death of Jesus on the cross was a payment. His death purchased our forgiveness, our redemption, our freedom, our fellowship with God, our eternal well-being. It, that was all purchased by Jesus on the cross. The blood that we sing about, that was the purchase payment. Jesus spoke his final words basically from 9 a.m. He was put on the cross till 3 p.m. in the afternoon is when it all came to an end. For those six hours, for those 360 minutes, that was a long time on that cross, but there were certain things that he said. One of the last things he said was, it is finished. In the Greek, it's teleo is, the, is the, the phrase that is used, teleo. And there's a lot of different meanings for that word, but there's two meanings that really stuck out as I was studying this. The first one is this. When a servant would be sent out on a mission, a master is like, basically, uh, you need to go do this. The servant goes out. The servant returns to the master and looks at the master and says, teleo means it's finished. I accomplished the mission. 
When I think about what Jesus did here, the use of this, Jesus has faithfully fulfilled the mission that his father gave him to seek and save those who are lost. And Jesus is like, mission accomplished, tleo. Second meaning of the word tleo is really a business term uh, used to mean fulfillment of a payment of debt. So when a debt has been paid in full, a parchment would be brought out and it would be stamped on there, paid in full. So basically, if, if you have a, a car payment, a house payment, somewhere that you've got this big payment going, a credit card, and then you get it all paid off, and then you get back this, this little paper, this notification, this invoice, and across the bottom it says, paid in full. That's teleo. Your debt, what you owe, has been paid. And for anybody who's ever been in debt who owes a lot of money on certain things, whenever you get something paid off, it's like, whew. It feels so good not to owe them anything anymore. The debt is wiped out because Jesus paid the price of a sin that no sinner could pay. We cannot pay for our sins. He paid the debt of sin that we owed. I love in Colossians chapter 1, the scripture says this, for he, remaining to Jesus Christ, he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased, there it is, our freedom and forgave our sins. See, because Jesus was willing to offer his own blood for the full payment of sinful debt, we're forgiven. We are debt-free, paid in full. Taleo, it's finished. So I want you to think of what all he did. From the moment he entered Jerusalem, in that moment when everybody's cheering him on, to then all of a sudden the misunderstanding, and uh, let's, you, know, you get back to the, the night when they were in the upper room, and then the betraying, and then we just continue on all the way through the beatings, and the false accusations, the isolation, the, the abandonment, all those things that took place. Think of through what all went through. It basically, then that moment where he gets on the cross, and he does that for you and me. It should leave us speechless to what he did. Maybe, maybe here's a different picture to help you. Years ago, we went out west to uh, Arizona. Family vacation. Uh, it was in the summer. It was super hot. I, I, you know, for years we've been wanting to go out. This was pre-COVID, right? And we was like, we just want to get out, get away, go west. I don't care. Let's go somewhere we've never been. So we picked Phoenix, by the way. Phoenix in July, bad choice. Just want to say, okay? If you like 115 degrees, okay, uh, otherwise. So we're out there. It's like, what can we do in the early evening? Let's go to a baseball game. The Arizona Diamondbacks, they close up the stadium. They, they close the roof. They keep it a little bit more acclimated to temperature that the ball players enjoy and the fan can enjoy. So we're inside enjoying a baseball game early evening, and soon the, everybody's phone goes off. It was like an amber alert. It's like, eh, eh. Everybody's like, what is going on? And we're like looking at our phones, and it's like dust storm approaching dust storm. It's like a Northwest Ohio fog alert, right? So it's like, what is this dust storm? Had no idea what a dust storm was out there until we walked out of the stadium afterwards. We walked out. We could see like, it looked like obviously there's a mess and water, not just water, but dirt and, and things have been thrown around a little bit. We're like, huh, I guess they got a big thunderstorm. Here's what a picture somebody took of it. We found this picture on social media of what that storm was. We were inside the stadium. We didn't even know this was happening. Now, can you imagine, and again, let's just do this. Let's picture that storm. If you were outside the stadium, 
And there's nothing between you and that storm. And it's going to hit you face on. You're going to get pummeled with dirt and the wind. You might have some, some, maybe some scrapes or something, I don't know, from, from that sand and that dirt hitting your face super hard at strong, powerful winds. You're going to get thrown around. You're going to have dirt in places that you wish you never had, right? You're going to get hit and covered, okay? But let's say that storm is coming, that storm is coming, and you just like, you're like bracing for it and you're, you're covering up. And then right when it gets like two inches, maybe one inch from you, all of a sudden it just stops and just goes shoots straight up. You don't get one speck of dirt on you. You don't feel the wisp of any wind hitting your face. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The full wrath of God, his judgment, his anger was coming in like a storm to, to humanity. And Jesus intercepted it and removed it so that we didn't have to take the full brunt of that. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He removed the penalty for what was coming. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 say this. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. This is Jesus. Again, Isaiah writes this years before Jesus ever comes, steps foot on earth. He was acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised. We didn't care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought the troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Church, listen, our sins, our mistakes, are basically what disqualifies us from being in front of a holy God. We can't be in God's presence because we have sin in our life. Instead, you know what we deserve? Eternal separation from God. And so we need to be rescued from our sin. We need forgiveness. And Jesus Christ is the one who was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we would be healed. He did all of this to save us. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. Disciples are like on the subject of forgiveness. While we're on the subject of forgiveness, Peter's like, hey, how many times should I forgive somebody? Like seven times? I mean, like six is an imperfect number. Maybe seven. Eh, What do you think? Jesus is like, how about 70 times seven? What? Jesus is like, yeah, that's how I forgive people. I show grace abundantly. I forgive and people shouldn't be forgiven. I will forgive. And he goes, let me give you a story as an example. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 18, Matthew 18, verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay it, so his master ordered that he be sold along with all of his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Here's the deal. He had a huge debt. Uh, in, in one translation, uh, it said 10,000 talents. I'll explain the talents in a second. But basically, I owe you 10,000 talents. You, here's what's going to happen. You can't pay me back, you're going to jail. Your wife, your kids, we're going to sell you all off until you guys can pay everything back. Well, here's the thing. If you're in prison, you can't work get it paid off. So you are going to be in prison forever. Because you can't pay it. 10,000 talents, let me help you this. One talent equaled 6,000 denarii, okay? One denarii equaled one day's wage. So basically, one talent equals 6,000 days worth of work. So 10,000 talents 
would be represent about 60 million days or about 164,000 years of labor. So basically, a person earning $100 a day, the 10,000 talents would equal about $600 million. Quite an exaggeration by Jesus, right? He's trying to express a point here. It's a hyperbole. He's like, so let's, let's say you owe $600 million. Of course, all of his listeners are going, there's no way you could ever pay that off. It is too great. And that's the whole point. No matter how big of a debt we owe, God is big enough to forgive us of that. That's an amazing thing. Max Lucado, he's a pastor and author. In one of his books, he challenged, uh, challenges readers to sort of calculate what we owe God. So this is what we do. We're going to use this illustration that he used. And the question begins like this. How many times do we sin in an hour? How many times do we sin in an hour? Well, hopefully during church, we were, were pretty hopefully sin-free. Unless we looked at somebody's outfit and said, I wish I had that. Oh, there's Jelsey. Bing, there's one. Okay. Uh, maybe you have a little pride. Oh, I could have sung better than that. Boop. Oh, there's another one. Okay. So anytime we started falling short, that's a sin, right? Um, to fall short is like this. Worrying. If you worry, that's falling short of trust, so that's a sin. Impatience, that's falling short of kindness. A critical spirit, that's falling short on love. Um, jealousy, pride, the list goes on. So we all fall short. Now, Max Lucado said we probably fall short about 10 times every hour. I'm thinking, I'd like to think of myself a little bit holier than that. So I'm going to go two to three times an hour. So let's put us in the more a little bit holier category of two to three, hour, two to three sins an hour. So 2.5, okay? So I'm going to do my math here. 2.5 times the number of hours I'm awake during the day, which is probably about 16 hours. So multiply 16, uh, then times 365 days a year. That equals 14,600. And then let's say I live to be 74 years old. So we're going to multiply all that. That basically puts me at 1,000, I'm sorry, 1,080,400 sins in my life. A million sins in my life. Now, how do I plan to pay for those million sins in in my life. Now, if I was go back to Old Testament, I'd go find a lamb, I'd go find some sheep, and I would sacrifice the lamb for my sins, right? I've got to find 1,080,400 lambs to sacrifice. Oh, wait, we've got to multiply that by the 7 billion people in this world. So take 1,080,400 lambs, multiply it by 7 billion. Anybody got a number? No. It's ridiculous, right? See, our sins are so huge. They can't be paid. Check out what happens in verse 26. But the man fell down before the master and begged him, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all. You can't pay it all. Then his master, filled with pity for him, released him and he forgave the debt. Filled with pity, he forgave the debt. That's what God does. God's full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy. And he looks at us and says, you can't pay the debt. That's why I'm putting my son out here to pay it in full. So God shows us his grace and mercy by what he does through his son. Look at Romans 3, 23, 24 on the screen. It says, for everyone, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We are forgiven. And that's basically what Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples in Matthew. The debt is too big. Only a gracious God can forgive the way that we need to be forgiven. And then Jesus shows us that on the cross. As God's child, listen church, as God's child, when I believe in that, when I agree to that, and I'm like, you know what, I have sinned. God, only you can forgive my sins. 
and we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, his spirit indwells us and empowers us and equips us for an eternal assignment. We are set apart. We are his masterpiece. We are created to do good things. We are changed. And as a child of God, we choose obedience. That's why we sing, I surrender all. Because we want to have that act of obedience after being forgiven. Worship team, would you come forward, please? Listen, we, we, we go through that exciting, triumphant moment. And we end up at the cross. And there's all these people that had all kinds of decisions to make between here and there. And I could, you know, go back and say, hey, which person are you in this story? I mean, there was people who, basically, let's start with the criminals. They're on the cross as well. And those guys were probably a little bit angry. They got mad at Jesus, the one finally repented. But I mean, think about this. They're up on the cross like, hey, if you are God, you could stop this pain, right? How many of us have had that prayer before, right? Hey, God, if you're truly God, why are we suffering? Why are we having this pain? And we can get angry with God. That's to be expected, right? And we, we ask God to help us out. And we, it's like, either you're God or you're a fraud. Which one is it? If I'm still up here on the cross at the end of the day, I'm guessing you're a fraud because you didn't help me. And some people are just angry with God. I understand that. But then there's, there's other people, like the religious leaders, who they looked at, they looked at uh, Jesus like, he's a good man. He's a moral man. But that's it. And there's a lot of people like that today. Well, I'll go to church and I'll worship and Jesus was a good dude and, and, uh, and there's God and, and everything, but that's about it. Let's just try to live a better life, right? The religious leaders didn't understand his mission. He came to save the world. He's a savior, not just a good dude. Maybe that's somebody here this morning. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're confused with who God is. Or maybe you're like, that one Roman soldier who after he saw everything go down, he realized, you know what? You truly are the son of God. We, we have all kinds of you know, situations we could look at and say, which one are you? Which one are you? Let's not put ourselves in any of those shoes right now. How about we just say, where are you at right now? When you look at what Jesus did for you on that cross, do you understand the magnitude of what he did? Paid in full, stamped right there. He took care of it. And, and all the things that we go through today, that's just a part of life on this side of eternity. Someday when Christ returns or when we die, we will eventually end up in his presence, in the presence of God, the one who loves us, the one who saves us. And that's something we look forward to. But until then, we rest in the assurance that we have an eternal hope through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are not alone. We are not abandoned. He walks with us through whatever you're going through this morning. He is with you. He's promised that. He loves you no matter what you've done. And he will forgive you no matter big your debt is. He will pay it off. He already paid it off. You just got to receive it. Next week, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. I mean, listen, if we didn't have next week, everything I'm talking about right now doesn't matter. But I can, I can preach with sincerity. I can preach with, with conviction. I can preach with hope because I know what we're celebrating next week happened. Because of the resurrection, everything that's been said today is real and legit. There's a lot of religions out there that they can't say that. Our faith, we can say that. God's word speaks truth. Where are you at in believing all this? 
Where are you at in believing all this? How are you handling the things that come your way right now? Are you trusting him? Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, for your truth. In those moments when we experience something so awesome and incredible and it goes bad, something that's like triumph and turns to tragedy, we don't know why and it's hard to understand why and maybe we'll just get a little bit bitter and upset or just confused. Lord, thank you for this moment in history. We can look back and say, oh, that happened to you. And you were victorious. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do it. Praise God, we don't have to. You already did. You paid the price so that we could have new life, that we could have freedom. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the new life we can experience. Thank you, Heavenly Father. This morning, as, as we sing this next song, God, just have your way inside us. If there's something that we need to confess, you help us confess. If there's something that we just need to give praise to you for, let us let praise come from our lips. But Lord, let us sing to you and worship you. You are so good. You are Savior. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We worship you now in song. In thy name we pray. Amen.